fellow citizens. Let's, let's be let's be, be bluntly honest. Who's the heavyweight champion of the world? In my opinion, still and perhaps always will be the greatest. There's so much there. Okay, yeah. What are we doing, great champion? You help to unite our nation. The cry for freedom as only sport can do. Pay attention to the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's, nobody's, nobody's calling. Nobody, 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 nobody's calling LeBron Black Jesus. Welcome back to Sports and Society. We're here on May 17th. This is Brad, and I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to talking about baseball cards and just had the thought uh, slam into my mind of, I wonder if I have any gems buried away somewhere. I don't even know where my baseball cards are, but uh, about how thrilling it would be to come across a a card that's worth uh, a few thousand dollars. Well, I will I will share my experience here in a moment with you all. So, all right, um, great, great, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, did you watch any of the Bundesliga stuff yesterday? I did. Yeah, I was super curious uh, about how they were going to do the logistics of it all, as as much as I was the actual soccer. And so it was kind of fun to see the opening and how they took the field and how they sat on the benches. Um, I wonder how effective it all was, their attempts at social distancing. So the players on the bench were sitting six feet apart and had masks on. Many of them during warm-ups wore masks. Uh, But then you think about the fact that 22 players are on the field (laughs) pushing up against each other and Mm -hmm. literally having their faces touch at times. I mean, couldn't get uh, closer to each other. And then I think what also stood out to me was, of course, just the obviousness of fans not being there, how the game itself is still the game at an extremely high level, but how it was paired with past experiences I have had around the game of soccer, and it felt like just some dudes playing soccer. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I I found that kind of, maybe not all that insightful or interesting other than just to point out that it was a reminder that these professional athletes are just playing a game. And so it looked like some dudes just playing a game. Um, But overall, I, I was, I very personally just enjoyed watching soccer again Hmm. and watching it live and having that which is compelling about the game of soccer still be there and still find some enjoyment and pleasure in it all so i i enjoyed it and albeit kind of weird yeah i so i didn't watch any of it yesterday um I'm still kind of enjoying not having sports all the time. Um, <laughs> and I, ha- but I watched the highlights cause I was intrigued. Um, it felt very strange. Um, mm-hmm. you know, the piped in music felt weird. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like Holland scoring that first goal and then going to celebrate. And it's kind of like, there's no energy in the celebration because right. there's nobody to celebrate in front of. Right. Um, you know what it really reminded me of, and we've talked about these pickup games that um, they've done, like the Dream Team pickup games, and I'm sure we'll talk mm-hmm. about the Space Jam pickup games today. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it made it feel so weird to have it in a big stadium. Like, what? I feel like it would have been so much more intense to have these guys in like the practice facility. Mm. Um, uh, I don't know why. It just. Uh, but it did what really struck me was that i think there's an extra component to the game now right like the teams that are going to succeed and the players that are going to succeed are not just those i mean there's well there, a there's an element of like who stayed fit when they weren't mm-hmm. training but also like who can stay focused when they're worried about getting sick and like who can get up in a stadium that doesn't have a bunch of fans yelling at you like these mm-hmm. are all skills that these guys have not had to develop before and now right they're going to be they're going to be players i'm sure that underperform and players that overperform in these new environments mhm yeah i agree i i think that's one of the most interesting pieces is one how glaring the fact is that the fans matter mm-hmm. in the celebration of that's like the moment when the the fourth wall so to speak comes down and while the fans may not be acknowledged by players uh, explicitly while they're playing it is in the celebration especially in soccer where 
uh, it's almost like um, the players go to the fans and it, it's mm -hmm. like the final, it's like a relief almost that they get to like be together in that space. But yeah, like you said, I, I wonder about the players that have for their whole career kind of leaned on crowd energy uh, as that which makes them excel and achieve at a high level, what, what it's going to do to them. But I, 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 I had this thought yesterday that I think there might be an advantage to younger players mm. uh, that have more to earn by being mm -hmm. there and also probably most recently have been playing in front of smaller crowds. Uh, so I would imagine Holland just like three or four years ago was probably playing on training pitches and that was about it. Um, so I, I, I could see that being the case. Mm -hmm. uh, I was also interested in the injuries. Apparently there was a higher tick of injuries than normal. I'm sure. Uh, for a normal Bundesliga weekend. Well, and right, the, they've all, they're allowed extra substitutions to try and uh, limit that exposure in some way. So that'll be interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's all very interesting. I, I think the last piece for me was um, how much of a moment this is for the Bundesliga for uh, conjuring an American fan base, mm -hmm. uh, which I don't have any statistics on it, but I'm pretty sure like English Premier League just absolutely dominate for Bundesliga. Sure, yeah. I mean, like a, a lot, a lot. Uh, and so this is a moment for them, I, I felt like. And you could tell it in a little bit of their advertising that they had put together to try and – it wasn't so much advertising as it was teaching. <laughs> it was like the ads were like, these two teams hate each other, and they have hated each other for years, and they will play next Saturday. <laughs> it's like uh, a, a lesson in rivalry. It's funny. Well, I did think it was uh, it's also interesting – uh, in the light of, you know, there's a couple future stars for the U.S. national team potentially playing yeah. over there. So, you know, Gio Reyna was supposed to start for Dortmund yesterday, which would have been huge as a 17-year-old. Yeah. So Yeah. That's so crazy to me that he's 17 yeah. in the first place. And also that he's 17 and playing for Dortmund uh, is really phenomenal. Compare him to the tens of thousands of high school juniors playing yeah. high school soccer in America. It just goes to show how different um, being raised in the sport is mm -hmm. than playing like the suburban version of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But what about the last dance? What do you think? Well, before we get to that, I wanted to talk just a little bit about baseball coming back. Um, oh, right. So there's a story that came out. Uh, Bryce Harper seems to be having some th second thoughts. Um, but I think the biggest thing was Blake Schnell, um, who I'm not particularly familiar with, but a Cy Young winner, uh, pitches for the Rays, was on Twitch um, and essentially said, "Well, and I will read the quote here, I'm not playing unless I get mine. That's the way it is for me. Like, I'm sorry you guys think differently, but the risk is way higher and the amount of money I'm making is way lower. Why would I think about doing that? So. Huh. <laughs> there's a lot in that. There's a lot in that. So it's um like so the, the some of the background being that they've kind of agreed it looks like to a 50-50 revenue split or at least that's what seems most likely at this point. Mm -hmm. The players still have to agree to that. Um but uh and Blake Snell makes 7 million for this season. That's what he's scheduled to make. Um uh and but I do think there's some real uh particularly from a pitching perspective, like he's probably got some legitimate points in here. I mean mm -hmm. to play a shortened season as a pitcher really could ruin a lot of future contracts for him. Right. But at the same time, like what is he risking by his public fan base by saying these things on a live right. social media platform? Right. Yeah. My first impression is uh, I applaud his his right to say whatever he wants. Mm -hmm. uh, I applaud him for saying I want to get paid for what I'm worth. Um, and I guess I, I support too the idea that like um, the only way the true risk can come to the surface and be dealt with appropriately is by speaking out mm -hmm. and articulating what that risk is and 
uh, no one bears the burden of that risk probably more than pitchers uh, as it relates to how easy it is to fall out of grace as a pitcher uh, and how difficult it is to secure a spot in a starting rotation Mm -hmm. and get that long-term contract. It's incredibly difficult to do. I can never get away from the fact that you're still millionaires. Uh, um, yeah, I don't know what to think about that. Yeah, and it's, you know, clearly I I think if I were him and I phrase it that way, I'd probably be mad at myself afterwards. Um, yeah. But on some level, there's a couple other things. One, he mentioned particularly, he said, uh, I mean, honestly, it's just scary to risk my life to get COVID-19 as well as not knowing and spreading it to others. So I have to applaud him well, because on a public perspective, like we probably need more people that share that they're afraid of the disease right now. Yeah. Because a lot of the public voices we're seeing are not sharing that at the moment. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I also have to say, I think he's got an excellent point in terms of like, I think what this is really about is that 50, 50 split. Um, and the point that the owners aren't really risking anything with this, whereas the uh, the players are the ones that are going to be out there risking mm-hmm. injury, risking exposure, doing all of this. So I mm-hmm. kind of understand that perspective. Like, come back with a better number on that, guys. Right. It's not like these owners are going to lose everything if this happens. If they right. if something happens, so. Yeah, and you think about where value is for an individual player and how quickly that value can dissipate. Mm -hmm. And so if he were to have like six bad outings in a row, you know, next time he goes to contract negotiations, they're going to say, what happened to six outings? Um, So it could have a massive effect for a lot of these guys. you You think about how mental that the pitching game is. And so, I mean, if he's off Mm -hmm. a little bit and worried about something while he's out there pitching, he's not going to perform particularly well. Right. Yeah, and the league's incentive is to smash as many games as possible into a short amount of time Mm -hmm. as possible, which is uh, terrible for a player, at least a pitcher probably more than anyone else. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, so anyway... Very interesting thoughts there. Um, I wouldn't have thought it'd be baseball where we'd be having this conversation, but interesting indeed. Yeah. Well, let's talk uh, Michael Jordan playing baseball. How about that? <laughs> yeah. How about that? Is it? I I still I I still can't believe that happened. <laughs> I know, right? I think that's the biggest thing for me with this whole documentary. I don't feel like we're learning a ton. Um, I feel like if we paid attention at the time, we would have known most of these things. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's so cool to be reminded of it in this way. And I also really appreciate this new uh, group of fans that will come about, that will know about this. Like, can you... Because like, if you're like 16 years old and you've grown up on LeBron and KD, the idea of them stopping that sport to go play another sport it would be so absurd. And yet here you're seeing the guy that they all idolize doing that very thing. I think it's significant, too, that it was baseball. Mm-hmm. And had he gone to play football, I think, would have been more easy to stomach in a way. Hmm. Um Granted, he doesn't have a football body in any way whatsoever, but I think if LeBron was like, I want to play tight end for the Browns next year and take a year off of basketball, that would be different than like him trying to go play center field for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's something about baseball being such a, a niche sport, and obviously we've had crossover players, but um, it's so rare. I mean, Dion and Bo Jackson are like... Um, the only two players I can think that cross over in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, have we ever had another basketball to baseball? I don't know that question. I'm sure we have, but not many. Yeah. Um, but I, I have been, I, while watching it, I, I was intrigued to see, and this is the part of the documentary I love so much is um, cause and effect so action and reaction uh, to what was happening in Jordan's life to the outside world. And so that relationship between um, 
Jordan and fans, Jordan mm-hmm. and the media, Jordan and his teammates, uh, who and what he is in each of those environments. I think him going to baseball, what stood out most was the media reaction and the media reaction being so closely tied with fans' reaction. And I, it's like, what are we really so fascinated by? And what is so shocking even today that like he did that? And I think that's maybe harder to answer. It, and I'm wondering uh, if it has to do with someone foregoing power that mm-hmm. seems so bizarre to us or foregoing celebrity or foregoing money uh, or prestige Um taking on a potential failure or taking a risk when you seemingly have like won the American dream sweepstakes. Like what is it that, um, I don't know, it it is seemingly so countercultural to simply like make a career move, (laughs) right? Like I, I, I mean, I think millennials, there's these statistics out there that will like have eight jobs in our lifetime. Mm -hmm where our parents' generation was like 1.3. Um, so I, I don't know. It, it, it's I, I think that is what's significant and interesting to me of like why we find it so shocking. Well, I think there's also, for me, like the, the level of, I don't want to say arrogance, but confidence, over mm-hmm. irrational confidence that he could go play and succeed at that other sport, which he has not done competitively in years. Right. Um, like that, it just takes. It's he was a special person and continues to be a special person in that way. Yeah, I think that's a good use of the word special. It is quite special and unique, which is rare to truly be special and unique, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yes, like you mentioned, I, another favorite part of these recent episodes for me was the fact that uh, is it Universal Studios. Mm-hmm. Uh, built him his own gym, <laughs> um, which is uh, as if we need any more evidence that he had an incredible amount of power. Um, but well, yes, those, those pickup games at his personal Universal Studios gym were pretty remarkable. Yeah, and just like, you know, everybody knew that it was a chance for Michael to scout them, I'd imagine. Yeah. Um, and yet they still all went because I think. Right. Uh, I I think there's something special that we're missing here that I think um so first of all, I love when Zach Lowe talks to Steve Kerr it's like one of my favorite things um mm-hmm. uh and I think what you when I when I always come away with with that is like Steve Kerr was just feels like a normal guy that really like loved basketball and was really good at it and so he succeeded in that way um but I think these top level guys like these Jordans these LeBrons, um, you know, uh, th- that are at the very top of the game, Reggie Miller, um, Isaiah Thomas, they they operate in a different sphere where there's no one like them around them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's what we see with the Dream Team and again here with the Space Jam thing is that they just want to be around people that they feel like are close to equals with them in some ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that like they just, they love that opportunity to be around other great basketball players which i find so fascinating Mm -hmm. it it makes me wonder about the extent to which it's just fun Mm -hmm. like is it a space for them just to be playful and and to find some uh find something that's pleasant and enjoyable and just kind of like a a relief relief like we all enjoy playing uh, to some extent, if 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 that's what it takes for them to achieve that enjoyment, um, that that seems significant and interesting that they can only get it by orchestrating these really difficult to orchestrate moments. I would imagine, right? Like they all have to fly to Universal Studios, they have to get hotels there, they have to live there for a while, they have to uh, all, all make it happen so that they can be in one place at one time. Which is, I think, what fascinated me. I guess it was two seasons ago when, like, LeBron and Harden and KD and them started organizing all these pickup games, mm-hmm. and how it kind of became a social media phenomenon. Um, it was actually Jordan that invented the concept, maybe to some extent, but also just that, like, 
it was fun watching those guys have fun mm-hmm. playing basketball. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoyed those clips of those pickup games. Yeah. Well, it's um, the whole Space Jam phenomenon was just uh, to think about that happening when Jordan, like between the season when the only time they lost in that kind of run when Jordan was there, um, like that would be the time that they would do this shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, so Jordan had to have been like, among the most frustrated times he'd ever been in his life while he was there for that. Uh, right. And yet his ability to compartmentalize seems to be rather extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just the, the resolve mm-hmm. is maybe one of his characteristics that uh, comes to the surface for me more than anything. Well, it is like... You know, I think that's one of the things that I would say, and this is, we've kind of been, I've been trying to f- figure this out, you know, this whole time in some ways, like what, why do I, uh, even though I probably appreciate LeBron as a person more, why do I appreciate Jordan as an entity, as a basketball icon more? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think in some level it comes down to that compartmentalization that, Jordan did all that crap off the court. Like his publicist or whoever will come to him and say, Hey, this is a great chance to do something incredible to do space jam or, Hey, you know, let's get you your shoes because that's, you know, that's Mm -hmm. really going to do a different thing for you. Um, and yet that never impacted his ruthlessness on the court. Like he, right. Uh, even if it wasn't good for his image, he was going to go out there and shut somebody down. And it just happened that that was good for his image where I don't feel like the modern players have that same like, uh, distance in some ways. Like the, the, the Jordan we saw on commercials was not the Jordan we saw on the basketball court. And he made no bones about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Where I feel like everybody nowadays, everything they do is about the marketing aspect in some ways. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. So that raises an interesting question for me that has been on the surface for me in watching this documentary and then uh, for some reason in some way coaching has been on my mind a lot recently. Mm-hmm. And when I look at Jordan, uh, in particular these episodes which was showing how hard it was to be his teammate in some ways and how similar it's the same thing with kobe a lot of his teammates are kind of saying like it wasn't pleasant like it you know it wasn't Mm -hmm. we weren't just kicking it like we we were working really hard and it was emotional and it was trying and it was maddening and it was frustrating and i was thinking about what it is that gave michael jordan permission to kind of be a dick Mm. and I thought about it very specifically in the moment when Steve Kerr was talking about how Jordan challenged him one day and Steve Kerr didn't back down. And the whole thing was filled with like male bravado and toxic masculinity, uh, even as Steve Kerr, mm-hmm. who I really admire, was talking about it. But Steve Kerr seemed really apt and convicted to make it clear that he was as competitive as Michael. And I appreciated it. Um, even in all that bravado, I appreciated the part where he kind of said, like, I just didn't have the athletic ability to back it up and to flaunt it like Michael can. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that seems like a certain iteration of privilege that could be unpacked a little bit mm-hmm. more or kind of teased out a little bit of, like, uh, I'm sure it exists in corporate America to a grand extent and not sure I know it does, right, that, like, um, these bosses and these CEOs that think like being a dick is the way to get things done. Um, and so I don't know. I, I I guess the documentary is certainly not completely lauding him being that way. And I think his first comment after he saw it was something along the lines of mm-hmm. like people are going to think I'm an asshole. And part of me wants to say like, well, because you kind of were. <laughs> like, we don't have to think about it. Like, that's not, so I don't know, it's that fine line between like, okay, he's the greatest of all time, but it came at the price of being a dick, and he even told Kobe, his advice was like, don't be a friend to anybody, you won't win this championship. 
Well, I think that that's um, the big thing for me there is that, uh, and the reason that I guess I come okay away thinking I'm not super angry or frustrated or anything by all of that, uh, and the is that I think that um, on some level, what we're seeing there is him uh, and all of these players um, being told that something is the most important thing. Yeah, and that they like they internalize that and it becomes true for them. And so, I mean, he's rather unapologetic as most of these players are, you know, Bill Lambeer, Isaiah Thomas included that like, this is what we had to do to win. And so that's what you do. Um, And that all stems from this idea that winning is what matters. Um, Right. And so the problem for me in some ways is not that these guys act this way, that they do these things, but that we've created this environment where that's the most important thing in their mm-hmm. lives and how do we start to and same in corporate america you know making that money making that salary destroying other companies is whatever it is that drives you is that thing that drives you how do you start to recreate a sense of balance and proportionality and uh understanding of what really matters in life mm-hmm. exactly yeah and in uplifting and and uh, elevating a, a certain value system that is actually quite contrarian to mm-hmm. not only the American dream, but uh, the part of the American dream that hinges on believing in arbitrary hardware, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like a championship. And then I always get confused or just um, kind of lost in thought on the other side of that of when, uh, of course, that trophy that you know, he so famously like cried on whenever he won. Um, the power and prestige and money and cultural reach that that afforded him and afforded mm-hmm. his teammates. And like, so it's like, okay, what is Michael Jordan being an asshole for? It's to win this championship, but it's also to increase his own brand such that he has more power, more money, more prestige, and that he. I don't think it's altruism that he wanted that for his teammates as well, as much as like he needed them to get that for himself. And it would be kind of a great uh, contingency or, um, I don't know, just a, another good thing that could come from it is that they could get some of that too, mm-hmm. which is an interesting idea of leadership and how leadership works. Well, it is. And I think there was an interesting comment on that most recent Zach Lowe, Steve Kerr podcast where they're talking about a particular sequence in the 98 finals when Kerr had a fast break with Jordan up there with him as a two on one kind of thing. Um, and they backed off. So Kerr had a wide open three and he took it, uh, and like the closing moments of the fourth quarter and he missed it and wound up getting his own offensive rebound and giving it to Michael for, a, uh, an and one layup. Uh, so it clearly didn't impact them in the long run, but, uh, Grant Lowe was asking, or Zach Lowe, excuse me, was asking, um, would Jordan have been pissed at him if he had missed the shot and hadn't gotten the offensive rebound and stuff? And Kerr, I thought this was really interesting in some ways, was he said that uh, he didn't think so because Jordan only got mad when you didn't take the shot. Um, Mm -hmm. So that he may have been breaking you down, but in some ways, at least in Kerr's mind, it was so that you felt confident to take that shot when the time came. Right, uh, which is an interesting thing to, uh, you know, I right. don't think it's a particularly effective way to do it the way he did. But right. in the end, maybe you could argue that what he had in mind was not the total that he had to be the total dominating force in these right. things. Right. So um, he did understand the importance of who was there with him. Right. Fascinating. Yeah. I do want to say. Um, uh, I love the shade at Gary Payton. Oh my goodness! Oh yeah, like, that was fun. He, hearing Gary that Payton say that, and then just getting like, yeah, allowing Jordan to have that last word was like, okay, yeah, that just feels appropriate. I'm sorry, yeah. Gary, but you you weren't you didn't have it, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Uh, All credit to Gary Payton for shutting him down for a couple games. Yeah. Uh, right. But yeah. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, that was pretty good. Well, I do want to stay. I've watched a few highlights on YouTube here, and I have to say that I've really missed, even though um, 
obviously there are very good reasons why these one of these people is not involved in this anymore. But I miss Marv Albert and Bill Walton and yeah. that NBC NBC th- theme song coming on. That's NBA basketball right there. Exactly. Yeah, NBA playoffs. There's there's few things like it in sports, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh I did want to mention one last thing in that uh Ken Burns spoke out criticizing mm-hmm. and I think it's legitimate. Um Ken Burns was essentially criticizing that Jordan was too involved in the making of the documentary, mm-hmm. so therefore sacrificing um or compromising some of the integrity of the journalistic aspect of it. Uh, I had a couple thoughts on that, and some writers I read this week picked up on Ken Burns' uh, comment and kind of ran with it, so there were others saying the same thing. And The one article that I actually sent you by Brian Armand Graham of The Guardian, he was, uh, or he he framed his argument as similar to Kim Burns by contrasting the last dance with the OJ made in America documentary, Mm. uh, which was a truly long form investigative piece. It was about kind of overturning every single rock along the way and saying what's under here. And we're going to look at it as, um, with as keen of a critical eye as possible. Whereas this is not that. Uh, I think it's kind of undoubted that it is not that. And I don't know if that means we need to be hard on it because I think it's entertainment as much or if not more than journalism. And I think they knew that going out uh, or going into it. And I also think uh, there's this piece of, and I think Adam Silver saw this before everyone else did, was this isn't going to get made unless mm-hmm. we're not going to have this footage. And so it was like a, a choice or a sacrifice. Like, do you want behind-the-scenes footage and do you want a lot of it? Um, or do you want to make these piecemeal documentaries for the next 50 years? So it was a choice to go for the behind-the-scenes footage, which wouldn't come without Jordan's permission. And so it's an interesting kind of like uh, – philosophical journalistic conversation around like how these things get made and i think it's a significant conversation because you know five and six million people are watching each episode um so it has real cultural worth in that way Hmm. it is i i I was sure that you were going to pick up on the ken burns comments Mm -hmm. Um, and it's i i i totally understand it and i guess i just when I saw this was happening, I never expected it to be yeah. real journalism uh, and the same. But I think it's what Ken Burns is probably pointing out that more of us need to be aware of is the trend towards this kind of stuff in general. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that, you know, Sarah and I had a conversation this week about how we really don't have any interest in watching this new Michelle Obama documentary that's on Netflix, it's the same thing because yeah. it's the same thing i don't yeah. have any interest in watching someone tell their own story in that yep. way um yeah uh, so it does and the the thing that makes me wonder now is how hard is it going to be to do that kind of journalism in the future the real journalism uh if everybody is doing their own story like can you do how are we going to be able to do a real biography on right. someone, uh, right. if they were, if we've now seen so many folks uh, exert control in this way, right? Well, see, this is where the like history teacher in me starts geeking out um, because I think there is still like a massive amount of legitimate value to this um, documentary, and I think there's, I would argue, there's value to Michelle Obama's, uh, but it's. And I think what Ken Burns is talking about is our ability to negotiate nuance and um, the simple tool that history teachers use uh, is called an OPCVL, Origin, Purpose, Content, Value, Limitation. And so anytime a student uh, cites a source in a, a history paper, they have to tell me where did it come from? Why was it written? Hmm. What's actually inside of it? 
what's its value to your argument based on those things and how does it limit your argument based on those things. And so you can use it absolutely. I, like I love telling students, you can use any source you want. What it counts and what makes your argument legitimate is how well you do with the OPCVL. Mm-hmm. And so if you're really good with that, you're going to elevate the legitimacy of your argument. But if you're unaware and ignorant of like why that source is the way it is and how it affects your argument, then it's useless. Hmm. So that's what I just like. I get nervous like you do of like the Michelle Obama is a perfect example of just like, gosh, I love Michelle Obama <laughs> so mm-hmm. much. But I get nervous that a Netflix audience can't look at it critically. Yeah. Well, I have to ask you now, even though this is totally just veering into politics and not uh, staying here, but uh, I presume you saw our attorney general's quote about history being written by the winners. I did not know. That's a good one. What was he saying? So he was asked after he reversed the Michael Flynn stuff. Yeah. Um, how history was going to look on his decision. And he responded like flat out, history is written by the winners. So it largely depends on who is writing the history. Um, and it's like, oh my goodness. Like things that people think and don't say were just said out loud here. So He doesn't care. He that doesn't guy doesn't care. care. <laughs> he is so bogus and so arrogant and so over all of it. And that dude does not care and is so righteous. <laughs> I like, we can get off politics, but I found his speech that he gave at Notre Dame to be like one of the most baffling things I've ever seen. Like, essentially, that's what he was arguing is that like I am the adjudicator, this is my job, and so I decide what's right. It's like whoa, oh man, yeah, we really need to talk baseball cards. Let's talk baseball cards. <laughs> the sentimental uh, feeling of home in the baseball world, for me anyway, or in the sports world. Yeah. Tell me about what made you want to talk baseball cards. I don't know. I Well, so I do know, actually. There was a um, there's a story on ESPN this a couple of weeks ago about this. Did you see this story? I did, yes. Uh, so I didn't actually read the story. Uh, I'm trying not to read anything on ESPN at the moment, um, if I can help mm-hmm. it. But um, uh, just got me thinking about how I my relationship with baseball cards and sports. I call them baseball cards, even though I have sports cards of every kind. Um, and so, uh, so today I've looked back through my collection here, and it just it, it's a very interesting thing. And read a few things this week. Uh, but yeah, what about, what about yourself? What intrigues you about this topic? Um, I think how prominent they were in our childhood. And I can remember us being very young and looking at baseball cards, um, Mm -hmm. and being equally fascinated in them. Um, so I think that is interesting. I think the moving on from baseball cards is an interesting conversation, both like for an individual and for a society of like how that came about, I think is an interesting story that in reading about it this week, I was interested to learn like kind of all the elements of that in that it involves like uh, corporate greed and mm-hmm. <laughs> um, institutional biases and all, all these like larger concepts we're always talking about. Uh, but then, like I like how you just said it, of kind of like this sense of home place and sense of like, uh, I don't know, the, the, the childlike sense of play and camaraderie amongst um, fellow collectors or people that are interested in looking at something. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the last piece for me was how baseball cards and the internet go together in many different complex ways. Yeah, so um, first I should say that, like, it's just, I find I'm still very sentimental about it. And I think mm-hmm. w- perhaps the most interesting thing that I read this week and the thing that got me thinking the most was about um, someone talking about how baseball cards were an introduction to capitalism for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that that rings very true for me. But I also feel like it was a very innocent form of that um Mm -hmm. but there was a part of me that was always looking at what card was the most valuable what card was the most whatever but i also spent 
hours upon hours, probably weeks of my life reading the statistics on the back of baseball cards. Yes. Um, because it like growing up for me, I was a long way from any professional teams. Um, we didn't have television to watch very many games. I don't know when I would ever really watch baseball at home growing up, but I, every yeah. morning I'd read the paper and I'd collect these baseball cards. And, um, so even though, you know, like none of the Cincinnati Reds cards were ever worth anything. I loved getting Reds cards in packs. And there was that, like, even if it was freaking, uh, what, what was the guy that was the closer on the Reds World Series team? You remember this? Rob Dibble? Uh, yeah. So, like, getting his stuff, I'm like, oh, it's a Red. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not worth shit, but, uh, I yeah. love that I got this card. Right. Um, right. There's Reggie, uh, the Reds player Reggie Jackson does that ring? A, no, not Reggie Jackson. Do you remember a Reggie Reds player? Reggie, um, I don't. Okay. Yeah. But in the like early nineties. Uh, well, early to mid nineties, yeah. I can't think of who that would be. I don't know. I'll think about it. But anyway. Yeah. But it, just the. So Reggie Sanders, that's who it was. Reggie Sanders, there yeah. you go. So like I yeah. have all of these Reggie Sanders cards. And looking back, I'm like, Reggie Sanders was fine, but he wasn't like... Right. It wasn't everything. Yeah. Um, and yet you would have thought he was by the way I collected his cards back in the yeah. day. Yeah. Uh, he was a great athlete. He he played a very athletic game of baseball, I feel like. Um but yes, he was a very middle of the pack major leaguer. <laughs> there wasn't much that stood out about Reggie Sanders. Yeah, so I, I can relate to all of that in the sense that I think uh, what baseball cards offered, uh, especially as I was a young kid, was a visual mm -hmm. uh, outside of actually being at the stadium. And so I, growing up very close to the stadium, I probably got to go to 10 to 20 games a year all growing up. Uh, but outside of that, it was watching on television, which I don't recall doing that often actually at home. Uh, but the main visual experience I had with uh, the players and the team was through baseball cards. Mm. And so kind of like lining them all up and just looking at them <laughs> was like mm -hmm. an ex a visual experience wherein like I was imagining them playing and I was imagining the game and – how different of an experience that would be for a kid now that uh yeah i mean if if you want to watch barry larkin now you you have endless opportunities on youtube to watch every single play barry larkin made in his entire career which is like which is in contrast to my experience as a kid of like remembering him making a diving play at one of the games i was at and then thinking of that diving play every time i was looking at the card um there's also that part too, the capitalism piece, which I, I think I don't think I had ever thought of it until we were talking about talking about baseball cards. And that was the gambling piece. Mm -hmm. I, I don't I had never connected mm -hmm. that. And it's such an obvious connection. But to go to the baseball card store which is something that doesn't exist anymore. And man, although I how did, distasteful were those stores looking back on it, man. They were like so misogynistic and sexist and masculine, and they were terrible they places. And they they made their living off kids, and I don't feel like they like kids, kids at all. Like yeah. the ones that I went to, they always were like, they didn't care about you at all. But, and some old, mean, gruffy dude yeah. that were, yeah, they were, they were terrible places, dimly lit. I was always nervous the whole time I was mm -hmm. in them. <laughs> um, but uh, thinking about how getting a pack of cards is like um, a slot machine. Mm -hmm. it, it's the exact same emotion of, am I going to get a card in here that is going to have value for me and potentially value to someone else such that I can trade it to get more of what I want? Uh, which is a fascinating lesson to get so early on. And I, it had me thinking about other ways kids learn those lessons and learn what that mm -hmm. feeling is like. Um, kind of that excitement gambling feeling well and that's so fitting i'm I'm sure you've you're familiar with this as well but uh 
it, there's a huge culture these days of opening those packs online mm-hmm. uh, and people getting that like uh, that glow of watching somebody else gamble in that way, mm-hmm. um, which is still like you know it's like watching the World Series of Poker in some ways, except it's total luck as opposed to any kind of strategy engaged with it. Mm-hmm. Did you have any cards, or do you have any cards that have monetary value to them? So it's so hard to know, first off, these days, which takes me back to those moments when you'd go get the Beckett, um, yeah. uh, and you'd look up and you'd be like, oh, yes, $3. Yeah. This one is right. legit. Right. Um, so I, the one that seems to potentially be here that I stumbled upon this morning, and I'm, I've forgotten I have half of these things, but... You know, it's all about the rookie cards, right? Um, right. So I've got a Kobe Bryant rookie card, which appears could be worth something. Um, so, but it's so hard to tell again online. I have no right. idea. Right. Um, but then the other thing, and it's so funny looking back because, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, the, the nice cases were always at a premium. So you only put... Like you had to triage which cards would go into the nice yes. cases. Um, yes. And so it's funny to look back and like, so that Kobe was not in a super nice case. Um, it's like mm-hmm. back in the day, I didn't appreciate that the way I do now, whereas I've got these other cards. So for instance, this this shows you, uh, you'll get a kick out of this. This was probably my most cherished card back in the day. And lo- looking back at it, I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Um, but it's a, it's a, card of Derek Anderson um, <laughs> when he was still playing for UK that he yeah. signed uh, and it's this hardwood signature series uh, which of course who knows what the hell that is but I yeah. thought this was so cool to have a signed Derek Anderson uh, card um, and that's it's, amazing <laughs> it's just like who? how many folks have already thrown this card away uh, right and yet I was like, oh, man, that's the one right there. Right, right, right. That's fascinating. And so well, hit, go ahead. Well, and they're so good at getting you, too. I don't know about you, but, like, so I, um, I've i got these. They used to do these special cards, and they still do, from what I understand, right? So, like, different designs, shiny things. And so I've got right, one right. here, like a, a Derek Jeter first year in the majors card. Um, yeah. Um, except like when they were doing this, they would have done it bronze, silver, and gold for these tops finest cards. Right. And, uh, and so this is a bronze, which essentially means it's worthless. But back in the day, like you got one of the, those colored cards and it had Derek Jeter on You're like, Oh yes, this is so exciting. Right. Uh, but they were so good. And that's what, on some level, that's why I still look at it sentimentally because that's what got me excited it wasn't that that card was really worth anything the excitement Mm -hmm. came prior to seeing the value in some ways right so i i found it interesting to think about and read about the arbitrary nature of how value is Mm -hmm. afforded to a certain card and it was also interesting to learn that our interest in baseball cards coincided with the heyday of baseball cards Mm -hmm. that right when we got into it so like late 80s early 90s uh was the height of baseball card era and how just on the tail end of our interest was when the market uh became flooded Mm -hmm. and essentially kind of some monopoly sort of activity was happening amongst those that produced the baseball cards and then also having that flooding the market coinciding with the 94-95 strike and then that also coinciding with the emergence of the internet such that it was more available to middle class American suburban kids Um, and then a last piece was uh, uh, another coincidence with um, Sega and Super Nintendo Mm mm-hmm so all in about three years, you had a flooded market and other outlets that were potentially much more exciting or at least um, faster and, and more robust than baseball cards. And so after the strike came back, like baseball cards have never recovered, mm-hmm. uh, which was interesting to learn about and see. Um, so I guess, yeah, all those things coming together at that time um, kind of make for an, an interesting conversation about like how value is 
uh, operating in our society at large, uh, but also in this very specific case. It's an interesting kind of test case of it all. Well, it is. I remember distinctly, and I'm looking at uh, a Randy Moss rookie card right here in front of me. Um, uh-huh. And I don't know if you remember this, but like when Randy Moss came into the league, his rookie card was the thing. Like that... Like it was several thousand dollars for a card from that year, which was just mm-hmm. staggering, and it never made any sense to me. It continues to not make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I, I think you're right. I think it speaks to that. You know, there's some statistics out there that, like, when we were in our heyday, um, like sixty percent of people that were collecting cards were doing it because they thought they were going to make money off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, which is just a really weird way. Like I don't, maybe I thought that way back in the day, but um, I don't think that way now. Right. Um, Yeah. That's what that ESPN article you didn't read was about uh, a writer for ESPN. I can't remember who it was. Uh, I don't read much baseball stuff, so I don't know the baseball writers all that well. Uh, But he was talking about how (laughs) a, a, a slimmer of his uh, haven in this time of quarantine has been his baseball card collection mm. that he said he hadn't looked at in years, but has always meant a lot to him. And a few last time he kind of spent time with them was when they were moving and he thought about selling them. And so he started to look up how much they were all worth and they all had every single card had gone down. <laughs> uh, and at one time in the late 80s, early 90s, he, he had like, uh, over a hundred thousand dollars worth of cards, hmm. um, and so he thought about selling every single one and trying to get like two thousand dollars so his family could go on vacation. But uh, he ended up just keeping them, and he said it's been like part of his safe space <laughs> uh, while he's in quarantine with his family, uh, which sounds odd, but I, I think I can get it. I, mm-hmm. I think I can relate to that. Um, I currently don't know exactly where my cards are. And I think of like the ones I really want is a set, which I had the entire 1990 World Series Reds team. Hmm. And I know I had other really valuable cards. I can even remember a trade that uh, was <laughs> devastating for me. Uh, I So I had a Ken Griffey rookie. Mm. Uh, and I traded it for a Cal Ripken rookie because the Cal Ripken was appreciating and Griffey was staying same like three Beckett's in a row. And I thought I had my friend. I was like, man, he doesn't know what's going to happen. Uh, but Griffey would have been right in the middle of his career at this point. And so his, he only appreciated more after that. And looking this morning, some Griffey rookies are selling for like $50,000 on eBay. <laughs> so I, don't know which rookie card I had, but <laughs> my Cal Ripken card was worthless in a few years. So, yeah. oh my, it is, uh, it's just so staggering. It makes me think, um, as well. I don't know if you know this or not, but, um, and I probably have shared this because, you know, what the hell do I remember that we talk about? I'm turning into my dad here. Um, <laughs> sorry, dad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, I, the one thing, uh, you know, when we, when our grandparents passed away, the one thing that I asked my parents if I could have was grandpa's stamp collection, mm-hmm. which knowing our grandfather, the only reason he collected those was because he thought they were going to be worth something someday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they're almost, none of them are really worth much to speak about these days. You know, I get excited when they're worth like a dollar a stamp, which is mm-hmm. nothing. Um, uh, but it's so neat to have that picture into who our grandfather was and have that Mm -hmm. little piece of him and to this day i'm trying to continue it when new things come out i'll pick up one or two uh from the post office but uh uh, it just i think there's value sarah always laughs at me when i talk about collecting things but uh i really do um find some value in having collections of things yeah. which is probably speaks to some deep-rooted consumerist capitalist impulse, but uh, <laughs> it feels very human to me as well. It is. It's a fascinating space that I'm, I I think what interests me is that I am aware that there's probably books written on collecting, and there's probably like um, 
you know, ways to gauge the healthiness of that collecting. Um, but I have never paid attention to it. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, we, uh, I don't think we'll pick it up again, but, uh, I, uh, I look back fondly on my days of collecting cards. Yeah, as do I. Hmm. Yeah. Well, anything else you want to share there? I think that's about all I got. Good deal. Well, do you have some trivia stuff for us? I do. So our question last week was, can you name the five players that took kicks in the 1998 World Cup? Um you got a couple. Do you remember which ones you named? I, I'm Brandy Chastain and Mia Hamm. Right. Uh, yeah. It, any other guesses? No. All right. So we got Carla Overbeck, Joy Fawcett, hmm. and Christine Lilly. So I think I would have gotten Brandy Chastain, Mia Hamm, and Christine Lilly. Yeah. And then if you said Joy Fawcett, I would have been like, oh, yeah. And then Carla Overbeck. I, I'm i sorry, Carla. I don't remember uh, Carla yeah, Overbeck all that well. <laughs> but apparently she was great at taking uh, spot kicks. Hmm. So here's to her for being part of like what I, I think we'll continue to look back on uh, as a true seminal kind of like watershed moment. Hmm. Um as women's sports continue to grow and as soccer continues to grow in the U.S. Um, yeah, I'll never forget that image of however many people fit in the Rose Bowl just going ballistic. Um, it was a cool moment. Yeah. All right, our question for this week. Um, I actually have two questions. So we're going to have a double-time trivia. Well, I have uh, one for you now, too, so go ahead. Oh, great. Oh, cool. Uh how many home runs did Michael Jordan hit? I know this. Uh, you do know? I do know, yeah. All right, hold your answer. And then um, I thought this was a fun one. How many steals did he have in his final season? Oh. And I'll give you some context for that. In uh 18-19 season, um, the leader had 170. And very interestingly, that was Paul George. Hmm. And he would have been ninth in the eighteen nineteen season. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, you've got a question. I do. Yes, so I'm a. We'll stick with baseball here, and because we were casting shade at uh, Reggie Sanders earlier, I feel the need to throw him some appreciation here. All right. Um. So, um, Reggie Sanders was the fifth member to reach a rather prestigious club of having 300 of two different statistics. What were those two statistics? Steals and home runs. Steals and home runs, yes. He was the fifth person in MLB history to reach that level. That's that's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) I think of how many people have played baseball. Yeah. That's an incredible statistic. Well done, Reggie Sanders. Yes, yeah, so I was while looking at this. There are some on the Reds uh, in the Reds world that feel like he. This is the biggest snub, World Hall of Fame snub in Reds history. Was that he has not gotten into the Hall of Fame? That's fascinating. It is. Yeah. It also makes me think that I learned today that Barry Larkin was the only living member of his induction class. Really? Wow. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. So he was the only one that gave a speech. I distinctly remember flat out hating Ozzie Smith because I love Barry Larkin and wanted him to be right. the best shortstop in the National right. League. Right. Yeah. I, I I had the exact same feeling, and I look back on that and I find it so silly and think of like how much enjoyment I missed out on yeah. because I wasn't paying attention to Ozzie Smith. Oh my. Yeah. Well, cool. All right, folks. Well, we'll be back next week. We'll look forward to learning about Jordan's baseball career. And uh, I'm excited to watch uh, the conclusion of the series tonight. Same. Yeah, it'll be good. I have to say, I we this is too late in the game to bring this up, but I'm a little disappointed. I kind of wanted the whole thing to be about that one season. Um, and it's clearly yeah, not been same, that. Yeah, same, same. 
someone, Matt Norlander, one of my favorite college basketball journalists, mentioned something similar. And someone was like, you really thought they could do a whole thing, 10 episodes on that season? And I was immediately struck by your uh, comment a long time ago about how you could write a 10-page paper on every at-bat in a Major League Baseball game. Um, Right. So... Uh, yes, you could write, you could do a whole series on game seven of that Indiana Pacers Bulls series. You really could. I yeah. really think so. And I think it would be awesome. And I'm ready for someone to take it on and brave it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Give us a rating and review wherever you listen to this, and we'll be back next week. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man. To the voices that are doing the framing. What we're talking about is the consumerism. Withheld and allotted only. Nobody's nobody's calling calling LeBron Black Jesus. I was a huge Dikembe Mutombo fan.